Good morning. We are beginning a series this morning on this uh, January the 6th as we begin a new year, as Jason mentioned. In, back in the book of Matthew where we started in the month of October, but this is a new series in what is, most would say, one of the most important passages, the, not just this morning, but the larger section of Scripture that we will look at in this series in all of the Bible. Um, and some would say... Um, you know, it's the single most important passage of Scripture in the sense of wanting to understand not only everything that the Old Testament is building up to, but everything that the New Testament is building out toward. Many would say this passage, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, <clears throat> commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, is, you know, the, the Magna Carta or, or whatever it is, you know, the, the great declaration, the inaugural um, vision of all that God has been planning and all that he is doing in uh, the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, some pastors would, maybe you've been in churches, if you've been in the church a long time, would take, you know, who knows, two years uh, to work through this material, and we are going to take just 13 weeks. But I hope, as I've said before uh, to you in this room, that what you get here on a Sunday morning is a beginning that you will uh, take this material, whether you do it with your small group, you see guides on your way out, uh, you do it individually, take the guide for yourself, whether you are um, studying this, memorizing some of it, walking with it, as it says in Deuteronomy, you know, that passage, Deuteronomy 6. We are to walk, we are to take God's word, and as we walk along the way, as we sit down in our homes, as we go along our every day, we're supposed to take it and, and to chew on it and to digest it, I hope that you will do that. You, some of you can do that this Thursday morning with, as we restart our morning Bible study for guys. I will be there. We'll be looking a little deeper at this material. 6.30, uh, I know our ladies' Bible study does it on Mondays. They'll do that tomorrow night here at 7, and there are other opportunities. I hope you take it further. Much of the, um, um, what happens in the Sermon on the Mount, we're just going to introduce it this morning, it's really a, it's a commentary by Jesus, you know, the, the, the Son of God, the God the Son, the Messiah, on the timeless law of God, right? You would imagine that would make sense. The people of God out of which Jesus came, you know, their, their law was summarized, or maybe the, 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 the most important, there's many laws in the Old Testament, of course, the, important are the, the most important are the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are important for, two, for a couple reasons. One there, they represent the moral law of God, right? Some of the laws of God were, you know, um, were completed and, and are no longer necessary. They, were, they, were, they had a timed obsolescence, the kosher laws and things like that. But the moral laws of God, right, they go on all the way through time. And we see them reappear in the New Testament. And Jesus will talk about them. But they also are a reflection not just of God's will, you might say, but of the character of God, right? We know something about God by understanding the moral law of God. But Jesus does, um, in this great sermon, he kind of, you might say, reinterprets them, right? He says, you have heard that it has been said, right? And he's talking, we'll see in a minute, to the choir in a manner of speech. He's talking to people that are Jewish people and, and sort of insiders. You've heard that it's been said, right? And then he quotes the sixth commandment or the seventh commandment or the tenth commandment. 
You shall not covet. You shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, you've heard this is what it says, but I want now to tell you what it really means. And when Jesus does this, he's not being novel. He's not saying, well, it didn't work. I want to give a new spin. No, he's saying, listen, it's always worked. But many people, maybe a majority of people, have not understood the Bible for what it really meant. And let me tell you what it really means. It has been said unto you, but let me tell you what it really means. Okay? That's what we're getting at. Now, before he gets to the commands, it's not today's talk. It's the bulk of the Sermon on the Mount. He begins with the blessings. Okay? It's very important. Before he gets to, let's talk about the real meaning of the commands, he begins with the blessings or what we call the Beatitudes. And it's not just a gloss, it's not just a, it's a colorful introduction. It is the basis of everything else he will say. It is the foundation of everything else he will say. Jesus will tell you, this is true in the Old Testament too, but God tells you, God tells me, it's a real takeaway of the message today, who you are before he tells you what to do. And if you get that order mixed up, your Christianity will be nothing more um, than an external going through the motions. He wants to tell you, declare to you who you are. This is the gift, the miracle of the Christian life. Who you are before he tells you what to do. Now, I feel like I'm dealing with, you know, the, 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 the um, declaration of independence of Jesus here. So I'm going to take a minute to pray. I need some prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this study that we're beginning this morning. And I pray that you would give me clarity of mind and of heart and give us clear minds and full hearts as we listen today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just read the first part of part one of this blessing introduction, Matthew 5, 1 through 6, follow along as I read. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, big part of chapter 4, he's healing everybody, he went up into a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The opening of this passage, even just the first two verses, I think raise a question for us that I hope that you and I will re-ask over the course of these 13 weeks. And that question is this, are you... Am I a committed follower of Jesus? Are you a committed follower of Jesus? Now, I don't ask that question to make you feel bad or to make us feel bad. I think the text asks this question. When Jesus saw the crowds, let me say something about the crowds. You have to read chapter 4. We looked at it a few months ago. But Jesus loves the crowds. He just got done. End of chapter 4. He spent all kinds of time with them and healed diseases and, and spoke the word of God and, and um, exercised demons. He spent an awful lot of time with the crowds. And I would say to you with absolute conviction that God loves 
the people in your life and in my life who are far from God today. He loves the crowds. But here, in this very famous discourse, there are five discourses in Matthew's gospel. This is the first one, the largest one, the most most well-known. Jesus is taking his disciples aside. And why does he do that? Why not stick with the crowds? When Jesus saw the crowds, why not stick with them? Most pastors like the more the merrier, right? He went up into a mountainside and sat down with his disciples, and he did that because what, the, what it means to be a disciple in this passage in the New Testament doesn't mean you're perfect, doesn't mean you're not in progress, it doesn't mean you don't make mistakes, but what it means here is you're a committed follower. You're already, you've already made the fundamental decisions. You may have a long way to go. But these men, these women, they're already committed followers. And Jesus says, these are the people I want to really communicate these truths to. I want everyone to live this kind of life. But you know, there's a passage, it's later in the, in the same sermon, where Jesus will say this, some advice. Do not cast your pearls before swine. Now, what does he mean when he says such an odd thing to say? But what he means, it's sort of a, 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 a Semitic uh, 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 way of saying something, a, a Hebraism, I think they call it. In other words, a, an idiom, a Jewish idiom. And he's saying, listen, do not take important things. Don't give spiritual truths to people who aren't ready for it. Right? Sometimes parents know this, right? You know when to say something and when not to. Or friends or something, you know, you want to say something important to and you go, well, listen, they don't really have ears to hear it right now. There's no point in saying that. And Jesus says this. I want you to share the message, but you know what? When it comes to spiritual truths, when it comes to calling people to live a certain way, he's saying, listen, don't cast your pearls before someone. Some people don't have ears. Their hearts aren't ready for it. But he takes his disciples aside, right? He sits down and he wants to teach them something about the life that is to come. Let me say other one other quick thing. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. Now, those of you who have been to Israel and maybe even been to the, to the Mount of um, uh, where the Beatitudes, Mark, did you go there? Yeah. Um, you, you'd be underwhelmed with mountainside, you know. I mean, uh, Cobb's Hill would dwarf the, 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 this, Okay. Why is Matthew using this term? Well, he uses this term, okay, there's a hill there. Luke calls it a level place because he's doing what he did in the birth narrative. I mentioned this before in December, that Jesus Christ, the child, he retraces the journey that the nation of Israel went in just his, you know, early couple years of life. He goes from Egypt with his parents, his father, stepfather and mother, to Egypt. Then he's in Egypt and he comes back to the promised land. Why does that happen? Why is it told? Because he's retracing the whole journey of the nation of Israel. Because Jesus is the true and perfect Israel. And where Israel as a nation failed, Jesus succeeded. He's also the true and better Moses. And he's about to explicate, he's about to talk about the commands of God. And Matthew's making a point here, Right? As Jesus is getting ready to say something about the Ten Commandments, he's the true and the better Moses. He's going to tell us what the laws of God were always intended to be and how they are to be lived in our life. He wants to talk about the nature of the life to come. And his most focused subject, okay, not just in this chapters 5, 6, and 7, but if you carefully, sometimes we need to do this, if you've been in the church a long time, you, 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 you have these layers of familiarity that aren't even really accurate, and you might say, what's Jesus' most 
talked about subjects, and we might say heaven or hell or, you know, divorce or marriage or sin, and, and, and none of those are, are those are all a, a, a very, very, very long uh, distance from his number one subject by a country mile is the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, or in my, you know, in, the, in our, our uh, uh, parlance, the life that God has come to bring. That's what his favorite subject is. Yes, we need to receive his forgiveness of sin. Yes, we need to be, as I've said, born again. That's just the beginning. That's the, you know, that's the, that's the um, you know, uh, 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 birth and delivery room, you know, of the Christian life. You've got to go through that gate. It's very important, the gospel that is his death and resurrection. But he didn't come to the world simply to free you of your sin. He came to give you a whole new quality of life if you have the ears to hear if I have the, and that's what the kingdom of God is about. Let me say this quickly. When I was a young Christian in this town, became a young Christian, was a college student, and there was, it was very popular in the parts of the 19th and 20th century in, you know, Bible-believing churches like this one, that people interpreted, right, not just, you know, a couple cranky, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, sects of Christianity, but a, a large group of Christians, they interpreted the kingdom of God that phrase, and how it's interpreted here in this famous sermon as holy future. They read the great sermon on the Mount. I remember being taught this. In looking at this very high standard, once you get past the Beatitudes of, you know, about marriage and about lust and about money and about integrity and about how we're supposed to live our lives. And it was taught in many churches, even, I'm sort of embarrassed to say, the seminary that I went to, great place, in their history, taught a particular view of understanding the kingdom of God, that it was holy future. It was almost like, you know, you come into, someone paints a picture. I don't know, you're in a, you're somewhere in this beautiful picture, this, the size of one of these screens, and it's this gorgeous picture of the sweet by and by, you know, streets of gold and, and you know, rivers and, and fruit and, 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 and God, and it's beautiful. And, and it says, this is the future, and it ought to inspire the way you live, but it's not really achievable here, Right? And part of the reason they thought that, the end of Matthew 5, says these words, okay? Be ye perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I think Bible scholars looked at this and said, listen, perfect, good night. I can, you know, I don't think I've had five seconds of perfection, Right? So when, when God says, listen, he goes through all these laws and he, he says, listen, what you thought the Old Testament said, it's much more than that. Adultery is not sleeping with someone who's not your wife. Adultery is looking at someone who's not your wife and having a, an inappropriate thought. Oh my goodness. Be you therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, then this must be for the future only. But most Christian uh, thinkers including my seminary, you know, they finally came around to it because they understood. You know how this sermon ends? We'll get to it in March, okay? Math, this is how it ends. This is the closing, you know, Jesus, like a good writer, is going to give you the final point. The last two verses, or three or four verses of, of the sermon, and then I said, listen, he who hears these words of mine, summary statement, is like a man or a woman who built their house upon a rock and the rains came and the streams rose and the winds beat against that house but it stood because it was founded on the rock okay 
But he who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, they still come to church, but they do not put them into practice. They do not build their life on them. They're like someone who built their house on sand and the rains came and the streams rose and the winds beat against that house and great was the crash. That's the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. Now let me say something to you. I don't know how you've heard that preached before. He's not talking about Christians and non-Christians. Christians are people that get it and all those non-Christians who thumb their nose at the offer of Jesus have a great crash. No. That's why I get back to verse 1 and verse 2. This message is not an evangelistic street sermon. He's talking to the committed, to the disciples. That's the audience of this message. And the end of this passage is saying, listen, he's talking to two kinds of Christians. Are you, am I a committed follower of Jesus? Well, I'm glad you're here today, but that doesn't make you a committed follower of Jesus. A committed follower of Jesus is someone who hears these words and builds their life upon them because the rains will come and the winds will come and they will beat against your life and beat against my life. And whether or not you or I are going to experience the life that God is really offering us, which only begins with the forgiveness of sins, depends on that choice. Are you really a committed follower of Jesus? A couple things and we're done. It begins, this is by way of introduction, with an honest acknowledgement of your need. That's really what we got here in the Beatitudes. What is Jesus saying? Let's start with what he's not saying. I don't know, maybe you've heard sermons on this before in your life if you, if you grew up in the church. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed, ugh. It doesn't sound very interesting. Well, let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying to be poor and to be miserable and to be timid is how you are saved and become a Christian, right? Wow, all I need to do is is get rid of all my stuff and, and become miserable. And you probably think, well, a lot of Christians I know are miserable. Like, maybe that's right, right? It's not what he's saying at all. How do I know that? Well, number one, I, I would say this, because then the converse would be true. Well, if I'm rich, you know, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the opposite of meek, I'm kind of a, you know, my way or the highway, I'm bold and I'm, 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 I have a lot of courage and, and, and I speak my mind, then I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. That's not what Jesus is saying. Let me tell you something. I know a lot of rich people uh, in the church and out of the church who are very unhappy and unsaved. But I also know a lot of poor people Okay, real poor people even, some, who are uh, very unhappy and far from God. In fact, I was, I, I've said to you before, I have these couple homeless guys that I've gotten to know because they're in my daily um, commute over the last year. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking this and that. I'm talking to one of them over the holidays, kind of a slow time, you know, as far as traffic. And so we had a conversation. We kind of got past the niceties and I said to this guy, I said, Victor, let me just ask you a question, you know, if I can, you know. I think I've earned the right. I said, what do you, you know, what's your, what do you want to do with yourself, you know? I mean, do you really want to be 
out, I mean, is it your plan? And I said this, I hope this doesn't sound offensive. I didn't mean it this way, and I don't think he took it this way. Is this what you want to do with your life? I mean, a year from now or five, is this what you, you want to be standing out here collecting money? Is that what you want to do? Do you have, do you have, do you have other plans, other ideas? And he said, well, you know, Rob, I, sometimes, I, he said, I make X dollars an hour. They even think, he goes, but other times I make, you know, X plus Y, it's great. You know, and I said, I said, okay, I understand that. But I said, even if you made $100 an hour, you know, his eyes just, wow, grew big, you know. I said, was this, would it really, do you really want to spend your life, and these are his words, not money, because he, I said, being a panhandler, that's what he calls himself. I said, is that what you want to do with your life? I'm just asking, you know. Maybe there's something standing in your way. And I said, what is it that you, if you could really dream, what do you want? Is there anything that you really want for your life? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, Maybe he wants his family back. Maybe he wants his career back. You know, I don't know. And I said, what is it? Is there anything that you really want? And he stopped for probably 30 seconds. And this really serious look on his face. And I thought, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm on the verge of some real progress here. This is going to be, oh, I'm gonna t- I can't wait to tell this story in church, you know. <laughs> what do you really want? Not that I'm, I have a magic wand, but I just... Having a real conversation, he goes, well, he goes, across the street from Wegmans, he said, there's this Chinese restaurant. And he said, they have the best lo mein I've ever had. <laughs> he said, you know, I, I really appreciate the Wendy's that you, he goes, but if you could get me that lo mein. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that's the best you got? <laughs> what do you really want? Dream big. I'll take some low main. <laughs> now, we, we laugh at that, but I think in a way, that's the way a lot of us would answer a question about what do you really want from God, right? Our expectations are very low. That's my impression. You know, twice, I've been a pastor here for 13 years. Two times in my career, um, once was I was just here maybe two years. Someone came up to me, private meeting, and said, Pastor, if I wrote you a check for a million dollars, the church, not me personally, if I wrote you a check for the million dollars, do you know what you would do with it? Now, whoever expects that, right? And I was just like, oh, uh, you know, we'll fix this and fix that and give some money to the poor. And, you know, it wasn't a very well-thought-out answer. And as you may guess, he didn't write the check, okay? (laughs) But, you know, I've thought about, I thought after that, you know, along hard about that. I thought, you know what? Maybe one of the reasons this church is not everything it could be, you know, the underlying uh, thing below a lot of my own frustrations back then is because its leader doesn't have any big ideas about what they want from God for this church, Right? And, and the best I could co- choke, co- choke out was, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take some low main, right? What Jesus is talking about here, okay? Let me be very clear about this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. He's not talking about a class of people, right? He's not saying you need to adopt these kinds of attitudes. He's talking about a quality of heart, 
that is necessary both to receive and to nurture the life that God is offering here. It's a, it's a positive spiritual orientation to God. That's what we're talking about. And it's the opposite of an arrogant self-confidence that I would say is kind of the underlying assumption of our culture in general, in business, in life, in the marketplace. It's the opposite of, a, of an arrogant self-confidence that causes most people, even many Christians, to treat God in their everyday life, practically speaking, as if he was irrelevant, right? We're believers, but we're not committed followers, okay? That's what I think Jesus is talking about. No one's being told here that they'd be better off if they're poor or they're destitute, Jesus is simply drawing from the community around him as he always does, right? He's talking about the poor and those who mourn because most of the people that he just got done, the crowds that he just got done healing, that's where they came from. A third of the entire Roman Empire were slaves in the first century. It wasn't hard to find people and Jesus is simply trying to use those people that were there to clarify his fundamental message, which is this. The free availability of God's rule and God's reign, the kingdom of God or the life, the quality of life he offers to absolutely anyone, doesn't matter what your background is, who's committed to a sustained reliance on Jesus. Psalm 81.10, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, perfect example of this. I am the Lord your God who delivered you from Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Okay? Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Okay? This verse really is a characterization, as is this photo. We have it. Of what I think is not only the beginning, but the middle and the end of the Christian life. Okay? the beginning and the middle and the end. And now Jesus is trying to say is, listen, you want to really experience the life I've offered? Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come to God every single day, empty and full, empty and full. Just listen to some of these um, different verses quickly, uh, different Translations of Matthew 5.3. You are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. The message translation. The Trotman version. You are blessed when you hit rock bottom because then you rely on God to go to work for you. The new life version. Those who know there is nothing good in themselves are happy because the holy nation of heaven is theirs. The Willard translation. Blessed are the spiritual zeros when the kingdom of God comes upon them. <clears throat> and my personal favorite, blessed are the sat upon, the spat upon, and the ratted on. Simon and Garfunkel, okay? <laughs> are you a committed follower of Jesus? The life you've always wanted begins with an honest acknowledgement of your need every single day. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. And it's followed, lastly, by a new vision 
for your life, okay? Now, I only have a few minutes, but verse 4, or I mean the fourth beatitude, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they will be filled. This is the engine of the entire sermon, and I would argue of the entire Christian life. You got to be empty first. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn for what you don't have, for, what you, for your own sin. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are smart enough to realize your pride is the biggest thing keeping you from the life that God always wanted. But then you got to learn how to be filled. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. It's the center of it. Let me, let me try to give this analogy quickly and we'll be done. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I'll tell the parents in this room. If you're a parent in this room, but even if you're not, imagine you are, and you have a, a five or six-year-old son or daughter, and God comes to you, or, you know, this is a, this is a hypothetical analogy, right? And he says, I'm going to give you the power as a parent. You got two options here. You, you to grant a wish, as a matter, in a manner of speaking. One option, option A is this. You can absolutely guarantee if you pull this lever that your son or daughter, your seven or eight-year-old son or daughter, when they're 23 years old, they will have a good, solid education. They will have a, um, a, uh, a, 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 a satisfying, meaningful career, and they will have a good and godly spouse. Just making those three up. If those are three things that you want, all you need to do is pull this lever and I guarantee you'll have it. Okay, option one. Now, option two is you can have, right now, you can give your child today a growing curiosity and desire for these things. And that growing curiosity and desire for these things begins today and it will grow over the next um, 15 or 18 years of their life. Now, I would say to you in a manner of speaking, these are two ways of looking at the Christian life. But here's the funny thing. The Bible doesn't give us two options, right? And I think many of us have chosen option A. I'm going to put in my time. I'm going to put in my, I'm going I'm to check the box as a matter of fact, I got a good start on my life because my parents were Christian. That's a good thing. I went to a Christian school. Good thing. And I'm going to hope and I'm going to pray and I'm going to wait for God to make his delivery. But what happens is this. Because the Bible does not teach that, eventually those things don't, re, don't materialize in your life. And one of two things results for a lot of people. It's the whole, really the story of the Old Testament people of God in a manner of speaking. Had these ex it's an expectation game. And because things don't work out, one of two things happens. Either you have this secret frustration in your heart that you might not say out loud that you've been a Christian a long time, but you haven't really grown. You haven't really seen any power or any joy in your life. And the older you get, the more um, frustrating it gets. Or even more than that, you're secretly mad at God. And you think the whole thing is not even legitimate, right? Are you a committed follower of Jesus? Am I a committed follower of Jesus? When he said, the word righteousness, okay? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let me say something about this word, so important for this sermon. I mean, this, this series. 
The word righteousness essentially means to be approved, to be made right, okay? And I would say to you that every single person in this room, and I, I would be uh, no problem saying that every person that's in this world, we, wake, we, we come into the world desiring to be validated, in fact, whether it's validation in our work, validation in our relationships, validation in our avocations, our, I think maybe it's one of the things that's most truly human about all of us is we're seeking to be validated. It's what many things gets us up out of bed in the morning. And I think it's, it's, it's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. But here's what I would suggest to you. That some of us don't realize that that long desire to be validated by your spouse, to be validated by your community, to be validated by your professional a cohort, the, the, the validation below all validations is, is a validation that you can only get from God, right? Only God, the only person that can validate you, that can validate me in where you most need it, to give, to, to free you, to live the life that God always wanted, is God himself. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Listen, you don't hunger and thirst for things that you have. Right? You don't have it. And there's not a single person in this room, when you, if you look at what Jesus is talking about, who has ever possessed the righteousness that he's talking about. You've never possessed it. You can't get it from your parents. You can't get it from your church. It has nothing to do with the kind of life that you've lived. It's absolutely alien and foreign. It's only given, empty and full. Blessed is he or she who hungers and thirsts for what they don't have. That's the life that you always wanted. C.S. Lewis said these words in this great book, um, Mere Christianity. Listen, we're almost done. Our faith is not a matter of our hearing what Christ said long ago and trying to carry it out. Okay? That's option one, Christianity. Our faith is not a matter of hearing what Christ said long ago and trying to carry it out. Rather... The real Son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought into you. Beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live man or woman. The part of you that does not like it is the part that is still tin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay? I want to challenge all of us as we begin this series, begin this new year, to cultivate a new hunger for the person of Jesus in your life and beside your life. We're going to take communion here. This is our time. We prepare to do that right now. But as you take these elements, right, we're going to take them together. It's double cups, just take two cups, hold on to them for a few minutes. Two things I want you to do, just in these minutes, we'll be done. Number one is bring to mind in this minute what these elements represent. It's the whole point. Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for right. Listen, what you most need and most want, you don't possess. You can't buy it. You don't inherit it. It's a, it's a foreign and alien gift that comes only from God. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it, okay? Jesus Christ died 
to satisfy the need for righteousness in every person's life, right? He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that we might know the life that we've always wanted in him. Perhaps bring to mind in these few quiet moments maybe a sin in your life that's bugging you, that's been keeping you from a closer relationship with God or an anxiety and use this opportunity to thank him, to affirm not what you have done or haven't done but what he has done for you in his gift in this communion. Let's pray. Father, thanks for these moments. We ask for your blessing, for your guidance, that you would speak to our hearts as we're here. Open our minds and our hearts. Help us to experience your grace in a new and renewed way.